0: From PRX.
1: You,
2: That's it. Right? Studio.
0: 360 with Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car.
2: Don't be sniffy about it. I'm not being sniffy. I think you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. What are you saying over there? Today
3: on the show... If one of Daddy's drinking buddies had asked what he's doing tonight, he would have told them he's fixing up for the hurricane. And when it's summer, there's always a hurricane coming or leaving here. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit.
2: Every year, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation awards its MacArthur Fellowships, more popularly known as the Genius Grants. By the way, although Studio 360 doesn't get funding from MacArthur, I just found out that our parent entity, PRI, does. The 2017 Fellows were announced last month, and I was delighted to see that several of this year's two dozen had recently been on Studio 360. So, this hour, we are going to bring you the conversations I had with them before they were official bona fide geniuses. First up, the playwright Annie Baker. Her shows are funny and riveting and unlike pretty much any other night at the theater I've ever had. Two of her first three plays won Obie Awards, the big Off-Broadway Prize. Her play The Flick won the Pulitzer in 2014. And now, at age 36, she is a MacArthur genius. I spoke with Annie Baker in 2015, right after the premiere of her play, John. About a decade had passed between the time that Annie studied writing at NYU and when she produced her first play, so I started our conversation by asking her, what she was doing for that decade between graduating and her first play in two thousand eight.
1: I had a lot of day jobs, which I'm really grateful for now. Like, um, I worked for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Really? Um, briefly, I worked for The Bachelor. Um, I, I there there's like dozens more. So, so maybe I, you'll go to hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I that was that was, that was only a week of my life, but it and, was a dark week. Of
2: and, and you're grateful because it's material.
1: Yeah. Once you sort of find your career and a job you really like, then you do interact with the same group and demographic for years at a time. And I had so many jobs in so many different parts of New York City. Oh, I worked for the Parks Department briefly. I just met so many people from all over the city, um, from all different backgrounds. That's
2: excellent. And so many writers who only know other writers end up writing about either literally or effectively other writers.
1: Yeah. I've never written a writer character, and I yeah, sort yeah. of dread the day when I do that, yeah. even though there's nothing wrong with that. Some of my favorite no, no. books are about writers. Yeah.
2: A year after it debuted in 2009, your, your play Circle Mirror Transformation, just to go on about the enormous <laughs> amazing successes you've had. It's uh, really embarrassing. Which is about a community drama class, was the 2nd most staged play in
1: America. Yeah, that was that was really surprising and not only I mean, it's it's no longer the second most right. produced. That's, that was sort of a brief, but why? amazing... Well, that was the thing. That was a total shocker to me. And um, not only was it produced in the States a lot, but it's been produced around the world. And I found out there was a touring production in Uruguay. And that shocked me because it was actually the play. When I sat down to write it, I thought to myself, I'm going to write something totally for myself about exactly where I grew up and the people I knew. Um... I was sort of writing about this community center in Amherst, Massachusetts, where I grew up. And one of the things I've discovered since the play kind of took off is that most towns in the world have sort of an eccentric lady who teaches a drama class in the basement of a community center. Like, that's sort of like a worldwide phenomenon. Um, And I I wasn't aware of that until...
2: And and I suppose also because, I mean, you now have this imprimatur of being, you know, cutting edge and hip. And yet it's, it's accessible. And your work is actually accessible. It's not... Whoa! I don't get this experimental thing.
1: No, I think of my work as as very accessible, if not too accessible. <laughs> like I, 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 I beat myself up in private for being overly accessible and conventional. Um, and so then I'm always really surprised when people say stuff like "cutting edge" or "divisive." Um, yeah, because
2: polarizing. Yeah,
1: polarizing. That that's been thrown around a lot, yeah. and I we'll talk and, about that. <laughs> and I really. I think of myself as a panderer.
2: All of your plays, I think, have small casts, and, and they all have, and this has been much talked about, uh, these pauses and silences. As you started writing in that way what and now, what do you feel those that those spaces do for you?
1: You know, it's now become a, a thing that I know I do because people have told me that I do it. You're a tick. Uh, That's my thing, I guess. But when I started writing plays, it wasn't an aesthetic project. It wasn't a thing I wanted to bring to the theater. Your theory of it? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't like, people are going to have to deal with silence. I was just writing the plays as I heard them in my head.
2: Yeah. Um, Somebody told me that uh, for a production of your play, The Aliens, in London a few years ago, they did it super fast. And it was unlike... It actually is supposed to be. Did you see it?
1: Um, I didn't see it, but, you know, in New York, um, it was two and a half hours. And in London, I think it was like 50, 55 minutes. And they said all the lines. So that was... So less than half as long. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of proved to me that two-thirds of the play really was silence. But I I wasn't even aware of that.
2: (laughs) Yeah. The characters in the flick... uh, the ushers and cleaners and projectionists in this movie theater really are desperate to make some kind of human connection but can't quite do it. Do, do you have this general feeling in the world that people are talking past each other or acting like actors without a script or something?
1: Yes. <laughs> yes, I do. I feel that way a lot, and I kind of assume most people feel that way. I'm not sure. I also just um, I feel constantly distressed by the amount of small talk that we all have to do every day. It, like, kind of drives me crazy, and I'm really bad at it. And I think, actually, small talk is something that I'm exploring in my plays, um, the agonies of small talk.
2: Yes. I, I'd never seen any of your work uh, before this summer. So I go to The Flick, uh, which is this play set in a movie theater with three people who work there, and it's not driven by its plot and these, the relationship of these three characters. Um, I thought I might hate it. Uh,
1: Yeah, from reading all the descriptions, I I thought it might be arty in a bad
2: way and boring and self-indulgent. I I imagined all the ways that I might hate it, and then I came out enraptured and loving it, and then rushed to see this new play and loved it as well. There are, however, for all of your acclaim and awards and 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 accessibility and all of the rest, there are people who who don't get your work at all. Yeah, and, and, and that this is why you are called polarizing. What, what, ha, do you have you drawn any conclusions about what kinds of people hate hate your work as opposed I, to those who no, love it? No, it's
1: sort of an ongoing investigation because I do find, especially in early previews of my plays. Um, that there are people who really hate it and are really vocal about it. Um, during an early preview of my new play, John, I sat next to this German woman who, in a very intimidating accent, kept saying throughout the play, that, you know, this is so depressing, this is so stupid, who wrote this? And then actually, at one point, she did say, like, a teenager must have written this. What stupid teenager wrote this play? And I mean, it was interesting to me that she said depressing yeah. I think I sort of thought she'd be like slow moving too long but that actually wasn't her beef I think it was too sad
2: your play John takes place at this B&B in Gettysburg uh, it's overflowing with kitschy knickknacks and teddy bears and dolls and stuff um, and it is run the operator of the B&B is this character Kitty and um, Creating her, I was thinking about how you, conscious you were of walking that razor's edge between making fun of her mm. um, because there's some humor at her expense and her very existence, and making her the wise, totally lovable character that she is as well. Was that was that the conscious like mm, too much this way, too much that way?
1: Definitely. I mean, I. That character I wrote specifically for an actor, Georgia Engel, who's a really sort of delightful person and is one of the smartest people I know. Yes, and people um, probably
2: know her as Georgette from the Georgette Mary Tyler Moore, the Moore show. from the Mary Tyler Moore show. Who married she, Ted Baxter. Yes. She's amazing.
1: She's incredible. In, in this play. And she has one of the quickest, most brilliant minds I've ever encountered. And so actually writing the part, I wrote it sort of with the knowledge that Georgia would be completely transcendent and likable And obviously, really, really smart. Um, And I actually something I really wanted to do was set up the expectation that the play was going to be about sort of two New Yorkers and the Daffy, Pennsylvania, proprietor of the bed and breakfast and then actually have her turn out to be a kind of telepathic mind Gemigod. reader yeah. neoplatonist witch yeah. um and that that was part of what made me want to write the play
2: but, but and and yet you, you, it's this spooky house and it was a civil war hospital and there's these suggestions of supernatural stuff and all that but you you never it's interesting that you went there because it's not like your previous work but you also it's interesting to me that you didn't go fully there it's not there's not suddenly ghosts and No, spoiler alert, or lack of spoiler alert. (laughs) You just ruined it, Kurt. You you don't go fully magical realist.
1: No, no. I really wanted to deal with the the feelings of the uncanny and um, feelings of dread and the supernatural, but sort of all in service of um, the spiritual development of the characters in the play and what that all meant metaphorically. Uh,
2: And for all of that talk, it sounds, oh my God, this is going to be this incredible uh, talky intellectual play. And there's some talk about, God, I guess, but it's 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 not, uh, you know. There's not big Kierkegaardian Arias in this play.
1: No, I mean, I what I wanted to write um, was people trying to talk about the divine or the numinous or whatever in you want to call they might. it, and the way they might fail at talking about it and try to talk about it. I do think I'm really interested in failure. As a playwright, I think that's in in failure to articulate something as opposed to like really nailing it. Um, And I feel like especially when it comes to talking about the divine, we're we're always going to feel incredibly um,
2: half-assed. Yeah, it just
1: it it, you just feel absurd when you try to talk about it. And so that's something I wanted to deal with in the play.
2: Annie Baker, thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Annie Baker's newest play, *The Antipodes*, premiered earlier this year. Coming up...
3: I thought, well, what could I do with my life? That if I did die in like a month or a year or tomorrow or whenever, that I would feel like I'd lived a life worth living.
2: How enduring Hurricane Katrina and the death of a sibling shaped Jasmine Ward's destiny.
3: I thought writing. Like, that's what I want to do. I want to be a writer.
2: That's next in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. The MacArthur Foundation just released its annual list of winners of its Genius Grants. Among them is the writer Jesmyn Ward, whom I spoke with in 2011. She had just published a novel called Salvage the Bones, about a fictional town on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi called Bois Sauvage. Jesmyn was not well known at the time, but as it turned out, Salvage the Bones was about to win the National Book Award for Fiction. She began our sit-down by reading an excerpt from Salvage the Bones where the book's 15-year-old narrator and her family are preparing for a hurricane.
3: If one of Daddy's drinking buddies had asked what he's doing tonight, he would have told them he's fixing up for the hurricane. It's summer, and when it's summer, there's always a hurricane coming or leaving here. Each pushes its way through the flat gulf to the 26-mile man-made Mississippi beach, where they knock against the old summer mansions with their slave galleys turned guest houses before running over the bayou, through the pines, to lose wind, drip rain, and die in the north. Most don't even hit us head-on anymore. Most turn right to Florida or take a left for Texas, brush past, and glance off us like a shirt sleeve. We ain't had one come straight for us in years. Time enough to forget how many jugs of water we need to fill. How many cans of sardines and potted meat we should stock. How many tubs of water we need. But on the radio that Daddy keeps playing in his parked truck, I heard them talking about it earlier today. How the forecasters said the 10th tropical depression had just dissipated in the Gulf, but another one seems to be forming around Puerto Rico. So today, Daddy woke me up by hitting the wall outside me and Junior's room. Wake up. We got work to do. Junior rolled over in his bed and curled into the wall. I sat up long enough to make Daddy think I was going to get up, and then I lay back down and drifted off. When I woke up two hours later, Daddy's radio was running in his truck. Junior's bed was empty, his blanket on the floor. Junior, get the rest of them shine jugs. Daddy, ain't none under the house. Outside the window, Daddy jabbed at the belly of the house with his can of beer. Junior tugged his shorts. Daddy gestured again, and Junior squatted and slithered under the house. The underside of the house didn't scare him like it had always scared me when I was little. Junior disappeared between the cinder blocks holding up the house for afternoons and would only come out when Skeeter threatened to send China under there after him. I asked Junior one time what he did under there, and all he would say is that he played— I imagined him digging sleeping holes like a dog would, laying on his back in the sandy red dirt and listening to our feet slide and push across floorboards. Junior had a good arm, and bottles and cans rolled out from under the house like pool balls. They stopped when they hit the rusted-over cow bath Daddy had salvaged from the junkyard where he scraps metal. He'd bought it home for Junior's birthday last year and told him to use it as a swimming pool. Shoot, Randall said. He was sitting on a chair under his homemade basketball goal, a rim he'd stolen from the county park and screwed into the trunk of a dead pine tree. Ain't nothing hit us in years. They don't come this way no more. When I was little, they was always hitting us.
2: That's Jasmine Ward reading from her novel Salvage the Bones. So how did you go from Katrina hitting you uh, to, to making it, the the basis of this novel?
3: It took me a few years to commit to writing about the hurricane. Um, I think that the hurricane was so awful and so devastating that it actually silenced me for a while. So it wasn't until around like 2007 that I decided that I wanted to tackle the hurricane in fiction. And even then, when I began writing the novel, I didn't uh, actually... Call the hurricane in the novel Hurricane Katrina until when I was halfway through the novel, and then I thought, "This is stupid. I know which storm <laughs> I'm writing about. I yeah. should call it Hurricane Katrina."
2: And and you, at that moment, were no longer living in, in on the Gulf Coast. Describe how you came to be there uh, at the, during the hurricane.
3: So I was attending the University of Michigan, and I had just finished up my MFA program in fiction. But I was scheduled to return to Ann Arbor late, late August to begin teaching. But because I'm always so homesick, I thought, well, you know, I'll just stay here, you know, until the last moment. Like, I'll stay here through the hurricane and then I'll, you know, drive up to Michigan because I totally underestimated the storm. Um, And then we didn't know that it was a Category 5 until the night before it hit, you know, and it hit early in the morning. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I, I just... I just didn't know what I was doing. I didn't, I totally underestimated it.
2: And what was it like for you and your family as you experienced it?
3: It was terrifying. It was, you know, we. my mom lives in a trailer, so, it, which, you know, you can, you can never stay in trailers during a hurricane. So we spent the night at my grandmother's house, and then when we woke up at like 6, 7 a.m., the storm was there. And then all of a sudden water was inside the house and her house had never flooded before and we'd been over there you know for like countless you know sort of hurricanes lesser storms Mm -hmm. and then the water rose very very quickly and the water rose so quickly that we were afraid that we would drown inside the house and we didn't want to climb into the attic because we didn't want to climb into the attic and drown Um, so we actually had to leave the house during the middle of the storm Um, And a lot of our cars were washed away. So we got into the trucks that had escaped the flood um, and we were trying to make it to the the local church, but we weren't able to make it there. And so we actually sat in a field, uh, a high field for a large portion of the storm until the water receded enough so that we could drive a little further. But still then, we, we couldn't get to the church. Um, and we were some of us were re- rescued by um, some neighbors that had a boat. Some of us were able to make it in our trucks a little later. Um, and we were taken in by a family for the rest of the storm.
2: So it sounds just about as scary as the <laughs> storm as that you fictionalized <laughs> in, in Salvage the Bones.
3: Yes, definitely, definitely.
2: The the heroine and narrator is a 15-year-old girl named Esh who lives in this house of men. Her mother had died in childbirth a few years earlier and uh, is a serious reader. She, she mentions having just read As I Lay Dying. Uh, she refers a lot recurringly to Greek gods and goddesses, which is not, you know, being this incredibly literate girl at 15 is 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 not the character you would expect this poor girl in a small town in the gulf coast to be Um, Mm -hmm. was that part of who she would be for you from the beginning
3: when i um sort of discovered i i knew that she would be reading over the summer like i knew that she read um because i figured that that she read in order to in order to to not be so isolated right Mm -hmm. and so i knew that she would she would do well in English classes, and she would take her assignments seriously, and she would do she would do them during the summer. Um, and but then, you know, as I wrote the novel, she surprised me with how much she identified with those characters from the myths and how she attached to the to the character of Medea um, and saw something of that character in herself and how that troubled her. Um, she saw something of herself in those myths. Um, and was able to sort of refer to them, to try to understand her existence um, and try to make sense of, of of what she what she was dealing with during that time.
2: Is Esh at fifteen a little bit like you at fifteen, a lot like you at fifteen? How, how does she compare?
3: Because she was a reader, um, and because she she was using books to escape. In that way, I think that she reflects me at 15. But then in all the other, you know, in in how promiscuous she is and, and how she sort of sees the world and navigates the world, I think that she's very much her own character. But I, I do think that, that her love of books is, there's a, there's a little bit of me in there at 15.
2: Have you, are you, well, you must have always been the smart kid in town, right?
3: I, w- <laughs> I was. I was always the smart kid. <laughs> Um, you know, I w- it's funny because, you know, when I graduate from high school, I was, or in high school, you know, I was a smart kid who was applying to all these Ivy League, Fancy colleges, yeah. yeah, fancy colleges to go to school. But like, I think back to even when I was in elementary school and, you know, and I would get teased and kids would call me a bookworm. So that uh, stigma of being the smart kid has been with me from the beginning.
2: You call this town Bois Sauvage, uh, which means Wildwood, which has a kind of mythological ring, uh, as if these children, these teenagers are living a kind of Lord of the Flies uh, existence. Was that intentional? There's a sort of fabulistic quality?
3: Uh, Originally, um, actually the name Bois Sauvage, I took it from my first book. I'm writing about a a fictionalized version of the place that I grew up, um, Mm -hmm. which is named Dalil, right? Mm-hmm. But Delisle is the second name for the town. The first name for the town, before it was named for a, a French settler, it was called Wolf Town, and so wow. that's actually why I came up with the French name Bois Sauvage because one of the I think I think that one of the meanings for Sauvage can actually be wolf, huh. um, and so I, I wanted that that name to sort of reflect the the history of the town that I come from.
2: So you read a lot as a as a kid. But at what point did you decide, I I really want to be a writer?
3: Uh, Honestly, it was after my brother died. Um, I actually sort of graduated from high school in Mississippi and then I attended college at Stanford University, which Stanford University is a great university, but because of my background, you know, I come from a, you know, a poor, black, rural community. I was just I was totally overwhelmed at Stanford and I and I thought that I did not belong there. And that doubt uh, regarding, you know, like my you know, intelligence followed me throughout my time there. And, and so I didn't commit to being a writer while I was there because I thought I took like one fiction class and uh, and I just thought that I wasn't good enough. Um, and I never spoke in class, and you know I struggled the entire time. But it wasn't until I graduated from Stanford, and I still harbored that sort of secret dream of being a writer. Um, and I graduated from Stanford, and then the year after I graduated from Stanford, during that year, that's when my brother, my younger brother, died. He was 19. He was hit by a drunk driver, and that that changed everything for me because, you know, he—I mean—he taught me an important lesson um, that you know that that. It's so it's so cliche, but you you know we're not promised anything, and that we can die at any time, and that um, and so you know I realized that, and I was sort of living with that loss every day, and with that realization every day, because I I loved them and I missed them so much, and I thought, well, what could I do with my life that you know that if I did that if I did die in like a month or a year or tomorrow or whenever, that I would feel like that it that I. I'd lived a life worth living and I'd done something that makes that makes me happy and that serves some purpose. Um, and then I thought writing like that's what I want to do. I want to be a writer. And so, you know, like I, I you know, sort of went against my better judgment, you know, which told me that I should attempt to, you know, study for the LSAT and go to law <laughs> school or <laughs> or find a pra- more practical profession. Um and I decided to commit to writing and that's when I began applying to MFA programs. Do you
2: uh, living in northern California and and Ann Arbor, Michigan, do do you miss the south and if so what do you miss about it?
3: I do miss the south. Um you know, while I was in those places, I this is going to sound strange, but I miss first I missed the air you know, it's very humid. <laughs> you talk the about it,
2: there's a lot of humidity in this book. Yes.
3: <laughs> yes. And it's hot. And, and I found that when I was in the South, and I think it's partly it's because it's where I'm from. And I have a very large extended family in DeLille. And I have a community where, you know, everyone knows everyone and everyone's been living there forever. And so I I think that, you know, that I missed that, but that I sort of associated that close knit tight feeling with the feeling of humidity and heat, because when you're in that kind of humidity, it feels like the air is embracing you. Uh, It's so heavy and so thick. I mean, there's a lot that I, even as I love Mississippi, there's a lot that I dislike about Mississippi. There's much that I hate about Mississippi, but, you know, I'm, that's home, so.
2: But you, you, on the other hand, you presumably wouldn't have become who you've become, a, a, a well-regarded novelist and the rest had you not left, right?
3: Exactly. Exactly. Because it taught me, you know, being a, away from home, I think, helped me to commit to writing about it when I did. Um, partly maybe because I was sort of writing into that homesickness because I missed it so much and thinking so much about home and like my my place there and if I could have a place there. um it just helped me see things more clearly and it helped me sort of, I guess, like more easily embrace the love that I felt for that place and for those people.
2: Jasmine Ward, thank you very much for coming into Studio 360 today.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: Jasmine Ward's third novel, Sing Unburied, Sing, is just out. And it is a finalist for this year's National Book Award for Fiction. Coming up, a performer who reinterprets songs from every decade of the history of the United States,
0: all the way back to Yankee Doodle Dandy. Our country was founded on Dandy Revenge.
2: Taylor Mack is just ahead in Studio
4: 360. Ooh, six and
2: from Public Radio International in association with Slate. When you think of drag performers, you probably think big wigs, high heels, fake Liza's and Judy's, and a kind of one-note, over-the-top campiness. But that's very 20th century. A whole bunch of performers are out there showing that drag can do lots more. Such as Taylor Mack, who transcends the form and is one of today's most magnificent theatrical artists, period. Mack's probably best known for a crazily ambitious project called A 24-Decade History of Popular Music. It's a theater show that takes on American music decade by decade, starting with the 1770s. A year ago, all 246 songs were performed for the first time in a single 24-hour-long concert. A reviewer for the New York Times described that show as one of the great experiences of my life. When Taylor Mack and I spoke back in 2014, a 24-decade history of popular music was still a work in progress. Taylor started by introducing the song If your kisses can't hold the man you love, then your tears won't bring him back.
0: And we do this in the 1920s show what we do i tell the story of these two gay men larry and barry and uh larry they were both in the war and larry's um the way he deals with the trauma of having been through the war is to squash the feelings down and not deal with them and the way barry deals with them is just to feel depressed and so they're kind of fighting throughout the concert larry and barry and uh at a certain point they decide to um break up and Larry is very sad about it and Larry's fairy godmother comes and sings a song to him and this is it Every time that I hear a woman cry that a man has left a flat I just feel like saying Don't be such a fool, you fool Come and dry your eyes Can't you realize That you gain nothing by that That's no way To keep his heart warm When his love grows cool What's the use of crying What's the use of sighing When he's wandered off the track If your kisses can't hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back No use being cheerful You might as well be cheerful When he's giving you the sack Cause if your kisses can't hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back
4: Now if sweet sugar kissing will not bring him home, how do you plan to keep him to you? With cheers and
0: more. So go be a regular fella, just say, What the hell? Are Grab his clothes, you help him pack. Cause if your kisses. Can't hold the man you love Then your tears won't bring him back Home cooking is good and wholesome But everybody needs a little mutton on the side Every now and then If you find your man is cheating on you You just go out and you do the same He's only given you the chance you've been waiting for all these years. You don't have to live a heteronormative narrative in it longer. It's called liberation. Men, get them by the score. Neglected women shouldn't worry. That's what God made sailors for. So don't cry for him or chase him. Just go out and replace him with some good-looking Tom, Dick or Jack. If your kisses can hold the man you love, then your tears won't bring him back. If your kisses can hold the man you love,
4: then your tears.
2: That was Taylor Mac, accompanied on piano by Matt Ray, performing "If Your Kisses Won't Hold the Man You Love" from the 1920s. That was fantastic. There was clearly some uh, modern adaptation there in the in the talked part. Oh, sure, yeah. And how historically accurate? Are you endeavoring to be, or will you take lots of liberties? <laughs> oh, there's
0: liberties. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I say it's my subjective history. I'm not a historian, and I don't have an interest in being a historian. I have an interest in history, and so I do re- a lot of research. And I like to reframe everything. So, for example, music from the 1770s, the whole decade has its own individual theme. Each one has their own theme. And the 1770s decade is about how America was founded on booze, man-boy love, and dandy revenge. And we basically go through the songs and we uh, appropriate you that
2: recontextualize yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, yes.
0: in some ways we don't. For example, um, Yankee Doodle Dandy was uh, originally sung by the british to make fun of americans saying that they were dandies and they were false dandies they were tacky dandies you know the british lost a particular battle and so the americans forced them to dance to a yankee doodle dandy while they sang it over and over and over again and that's how it became huh. an american song huh. that we sing so that there's a little bit of truth to my appropriation right you know which is that our country was founded on dandy revenge
2: yes now, will it get tricky a little later in the
0: 1840s and 50s when minstrelsy becomes the big thing? Well, we've been doing them out of order. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I haven't quite done the 40s, but I found this family of abolitionists. I think they're called the Hutchinson family. Yes, they were
2: huge stars huge in America. Huge stars. Yeah.
0: And my idea is that we do the 1840s will be just their music. Uh-huh. But then there, that, that always comes up is there's so many minstrel songs and um, it's always a balance of – you know, uh, not ignoring it, um, yes. but also not allowing that particular story to become the story of right. of what I'm doing. But
2: it seems like you can't ignore it. I mean, no, Stephen no, 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 Foster, no. after all.
0: Oh, well, and so the 1850s we did, and we did a, a Walt Whitman, Stephen Foster mashup. So everyone says that Stephen Foster is, the you know, the father of American song. So, but I think Walt Whitman is so... What we did was we basically pitted them against each other. Walt Whitman is the self-declared no sentimentalist, and uh, Stephen Foster is a sentimentalist, and so we kind of used that as a way to kind of attack this minstreling of. That um, sounds great. Yeah, it's fun. Gender identity and
2: sexual identity obviously runs through most, if not all, of your work. Does
0: that figure in every decade of this? Project or not? Well, it's a querying of history. I really do think that that's a lot of what I'm doing is uh-huh. finding where are my people in history. Yeah. You know, even if I have to make them my people. Yes. I don't always focus on it for every decade. You but dial it back sometimes. Yeah, but sometimes but it's always present, yeah. you know, because it's just who I am and right. what I do. So I don't have to hammer people over the head with it because yeah. I mean they're looking at it. So <laughs> As I've read things you've said and written, it strikes me that surprisingly,
2: uh, given who you are otherwise and the characters you play, that you're kind of a theatrical conservative. You believe in story and craft and giving the audience what they want, right?
0: Oh, I wouldn't say giving them what they want.
2: Or at least satisfying them.
0: I try to give the audience what they need. And what I mean by that is I, I'm trying to be a student of humanity. And so I try to figure out what do people need at this time in their lives, um, kind of collectively. Oftentimes, it's just about figuring out what you need because you're a person and people will relate to you. you know? so, yeah. so that doesn't necessarily mean that the shows are always entertaining or fun or satisfying. Right. <laughs> Sometimes they're really disturbing. Right. Um,
2: but, but you are a, a show person, clearly. You like entertaining.
0: Yeah, I do. I do like to entertain people. People. That's um,
2: true. You were trained classically as an actor. Yeah. How and why and when did drag become the core of your performance?
0: Uh, the whole reason I do it is because I'm I'm interested in homogeneity and heterogeneity. I grew up in a suburban uh, town where everyone was supposed to be the same, mm-hmm. and. I, I've become very fascinated with that as a result. So my drag was about trying to take a topic and tear that topic apart and say how what in a kind of postmodern way, you mm-hmm. know, and then look at all the pieces and then put them all back together again somehow and say what what's the full range of what the topic looks like and feels like. And it's also about exposing what I look like on the inside. So people will often say, do you feel like you're hiding when you put on those costumes? And I say, no, what I'm doing is I'm exposing what I look like on the inside. So when I'm wearing my jeans and a t-shirt, that's when I'm hiding, because I'm trying to blend in with everybody else. And you don't... Or And may, as I, far as I know, have never had a, a, a drag name. No, no, I, that was very, I really did not want to have a drag name. Because? <laughs> uh, because then you become, you know, misalliance for the rest of your life yeah. or whatever, you know. And I think that's fun. You but, know, but it when sort of really
2: trivializes it?
0: Uh, for me, it, again, it was about not hiding. So I just right. kind of wanted to expose who I was.
2: You, wrote, you performed and wrote this great thing called uh, A Theatrical Manifesto, I believe, mm-hmm. in which m- much of it struck me. One of the tenets that really struck me was, quote, if we stop telling a majority of the people they d- won't like what we do, they would actually like what we
0: do. <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm really interested in, um, uh, in, in recognizing that people actually – that avant-garde is commercial. Um, Especially if you don't call it avant garde, right? And I and I see people enjoy avant garde fashion all the time. Maybe they make fun of it a little bit, or you know, but but they line up to see it. Um, you know, it's the biggest selling show at the Met. You know, it was the, oh, the was Alexander McQueen Alexander yeah, yeah. McQueen. Met, you know, yeah. it's at the Met, and that's the biggest selling show in the history of the Met. And it's avant-garde fashion. Yeah. So what did the fashion industry do to um, encourage their audience to want to see um, avant-garde fashion and accept that, that uh, performing artists um, and they theater just artists have it not fashion. done? They just it fashion. Right, right, yeah.
2: Uh, will you do another song?
0: Sure, and this one is. Oh, we're going to do a Ted Nugent song. What? Snakeskin cowboy.
2: And this is this is from the <laughs> two hundred and forty year thing.
0: Uh, yeah, it's from the nineteen eighties, um, uh, or it might be seventies. I'm not. Sure, I can't remember. No. But um, the Ted Nugent heyday, in any case. Yeah, exactly. And what? What we did with it is we, we didn't want to actually have to listen to the song. because um, We just read the lyrics. I felt like we needed to do um, something by somebody who was a conservative. Um, but I didn't want to listen to the song, so we just made up our own melody for it. And uh, we <laughs> were just singing his lyrics. Um, and so we'll do that for you now. Excellent. assume that this song, you can interpret it this way, that uh, Ted Nugent was writing it to to mean that he wanted to um, bash anyone who was dressed in fancy clothes and performing on a stage. So when I read the lyric, I thought, ooh, that song needs to be appropriated. So uh, we've turned it into a uh, junior high prom dance and what we'd like the listening audience to do is to find someone next to you and please just hold them and sway and just dance like you're at the junior prom. It doesn't matter what gender they are. Uh, If you're alone in your car or just uh, listening to this by yourself, just hold yourself because that's subversive because if you hold yourself, it means you're a little gay. And our point here is that we want to turn Ned, nu- Ted Ned Nugent. We want to turn Ted Nugent into a gay. So that's what we're doing. We're gayifying his song. We're emasculating Ted Nugent. So just find your partner, hold them. If you, um, if you don't do this, we, we really have to really do it. You have to do it, because if you don't do it, Ted Nugent will win, and it'll be your fault. Here we go.
4: No,
2: That was Taylor Mac, accompanied again this time on vocal as well as piano by Matt Ray, performing "Snakeskin Cowboy." Wonderful, Matt Ray. That was brilliant. And and uh, before I let you go, I, I'm going to give you a prediction mm-hmm. about yourself. Yeah. You are in a in a very few years, five max, going to be a MacArthur genius. Oh. <laughs> Now, when it happens, you've got to Telling you, people that. You have to thank <laughs> I'd me. like to, the money. You heard it here first.
0: <laughs> sure, absolutely. I, I
2: have never had this thought spontaneously about one of my guests before, but I did now. And
0: oh, you're very sweet. I hope
2: it comes true. Taylor Mack, thank you very much. Thank you. And it did come true, so I had to call Taylor and check back in. Hello? Hi, is that Taylor? It is. Hello, it's Kurt Anderson calling.
5: Hi, Kurt.
2: <laughs> How are you?
5: I'm really good. I'll
2: bet you are.
5: <laughs> <laughs> you predicted
2: it. Well, there you go. And uh, as I said at the time, I, I had never made such a prediction before. I don't know why I suddenly did at the end of our conversation. Well, you manifested it for I, me. <laughs> I guess that's it. I guess that it. But, I mean, is, is that something you thought like, yeah, maybe so? Well, you know, it's the
5: holy grail. It's the gold rush of the non-commercial artists, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, of course, you think about it. I mean, you don't just, people say that they just call you and they give you the money. It doesn't really work that way. It's uh, You have to work the system for years and years. And then if you work the system, then maybe they <laughs> will call you.
2: And, and I guess actually, though, more, more practically, not looking rich is probably helpful. Uh, well, I don't know. They gave it to David Simon. You know, <laughs> like, that's true. That's I mean, true. Like, that's true. Um, do you have any plans or, or ideas of what you're gonna do with the 125 grand a year?
5: It's this kind of wonderful thing where, if I play it right, I could have seed money for every production that I want to do for the rest of my life. It's not like it's enough to stop having to fundraise, right. but it is enough that I have something to kickstart everything, and it's enough that I can give back. So I'm, I want to do a little combination of the two.
2: Yes. When when we spoke last, you you hadn't yet finished uh, twenty four decade history of popular music. You have. Yeah. It, it it was gloriously realized. Are, are there going to be uh, more performances? coming up that people can see? Yeah,
5: I mean, we just did one in San Francisco at the Curran Theater, and then we went to Melbourne and did the Melbourne Festival, the entire show, um, four six-hour shows. And now we're going to do it in L.A. in March, and then Philly, two 12-hour shows. And then we're going to retire it. We've been working on it for seven years now, and I have lots of other projects that I want to put out into the world. Good.
2: Uh, Well, it always pleases me when the the most talented and the nicest people, uh, (laughs) it works out for them. So uh, congratulations. And and, and it made me feel good, not not just because I predicted it, but because you deserved (laughs) it.
5: Well, thank you so much. It was so wonderful. And... And uh, thank you for your book. I I know you're probably not supposed to promote your own stuff on your show, but I'm reading your book, Fantasyland, right now. And uh, it's so exciting. Well, thank you. I was raised Christian scientist, so, uh, you know, my whole life has been (laughs) Fantasyland. There
2: you go. There you go.
5: So so I'm really... um, Gigging it. Oh, I'm really pleased.
2: I uh, can't wait to see you next in some other performance. Will you? Will you take gigs like like the Brecht or something else like that in the meantime?
5: Oh yeah. I mean, I'm a gigger. That's my life. Good.
2: Good. Well, you're on my. You're on my. You're on the little alert app I have to let me know when you're performing. So, uh I'll, oh. I'll, I'll, I'll appear whenever that next one is. Uh, our next. Our, actually,
5: our next show is. Uh, I should have said this. Town Hall, December twelfth. <laughs> We're doing a, a twenty-four decade holiday show.
2: Well. Uh, yeah. I'm going to make buy tickets for the Taylor Mac Christmas show right now. <laughs> um, Taylor, it is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very, very much. Yeah, thank you. And that is it for today's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. And our executive producer is...
1: Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our
2: senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louie Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim.
3: Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders.
2: Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Vlad Galette. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. PRI. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... Alec Baldwin talks about the SNL character he gets into who he can't always get out of. You'll look at somebody and go, I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Very well done. I want you to roast the shit out of that chicken. You know, and you just just burst into that. Taped from New York. It's Studio 360
3: next time.